high in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 223 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I'm Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. And Andy, there's a big tie for the 223rd uh, highest home run total, career home run total in uh, Giants history. You have Mike Aldretti. I thought he might have had more. You have Willie McGee. Thought he might have had less. Uh, Corey Snyder, Donovan Solano, and 14 home runs. Buster Maynard. Buster Maynard. <laughs> did you know that there was a Buster Maynard in Giants history? I did not. I know that there's a Cumberland Posey in the Hall of Fame, but I did not know about Buster Maynard. What what era of Giantsdom is this? Is this uh, like, um, are we talking about like the 19 aughts? This is 1940 to 1946. Uh, he did miss some time in 1941. Uh, maybe he was injured. What do you think? Uh, flat feet. Yeah, flat feet. That's also what got him out of military service. <laughs> I would guess that he missed 1941 for uh, military reasons, which is interesting, interesting stuff. But we are not here to talk about Buster Maynard. Uh, we're here to talk about the Giants, spring training, what they got going on. Uh, what You've got your uh, eyes on camp. What are you seeing down there, Andy? Well, today, Grant, I had my eyes on a whole bunch of nothing because it was a scheduled (laughs) doubleheader. And I was actually a little conflicted because a lot of guys that I wanted to watch would have been uh, home against the White Sox. But the road squad was just up the road uh, um, in North Scottsdale at uh, Salt River Fields against the Diamondbacks, where one Messer Madison Bumgarner was going to take the mound for the uh, Arizona club. So I think I probably would have gone to the road game and, and seen what that looked like. But uh, the choice was taken away from me by Mother Nature. It was a little bit cold and rainy today. And, and they're at the point of the spring where you don't want to send anybody out there to get hurt. I mean, that's the one thing you don't want to have happen in spring training. So as much as I'm sure it really pained them to lose the gate and the opportunity to sell $16 truly seltzers to people, um, we had no baseball today. But I will say that um, I think that I've seen most everybody by this point in the spring. And usually there's just like one or two people that stand out. And, you know, this is not to sound super Pollyanna, but the Giants have had a number of people who have been pretty eye-opening in this camp. You know, from uh, Keaton Wynn to a Tristan Beck uh, to a Sean Jelly, Sean Manaya adding a little bit of velo. A lot of things, good things happening on the pitching side. And then, you know, obviously you have some injuries uh, and people get a little nicked up and it's hard to know what to make of things when someone misses a week of spring training because it is just spring training. But, you know, Brandon Crawford having a sore knee is not great. Having Mitch Haniger uh, out for a little while is not great. David Villar even has been uh, sidelined a little bit. So, you know, Austin Slater... You'd like to see them getting healthier instead of less healthy, and that wasn't really the case the last 72 hours here. But other than that, it's been, I think, a pretty calm spring, and um, we kind of knew what this roster would look like, and I I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of deviations from that, with the exception of maybe a name or two. 
when I was uh, scuffling for ideas and trying to figure out what I wanted to write earlier, I said, uh, I kind of maybe I should write something about, boy, this camp hasn't been going. Uh, it's been a lot of uh, negative news coming out of camp. And you push back on that a little bit. You said, no. No, no, no. There hasn't been like a Carlos Rodon no, uh, a news clip. There hasn't been uh, something that absolutely devastates the the Giants. You can just say, well, Brandon Crawford, yeah, he's not 100%. He's 36. Of course, his knee's going to be a little bit sore. They're going to be careful with that. Uh, Mitch Hanniger, you know, it's it's a oblique strain, but it's not a grade. I don't know how high they go up. It's not a grade eight oblique strain, which I think would like leave the oblique visible from the outside of the body. It's a grade one strain, which is fine. He should be there for opening day. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, it's been a pretty calm camp. And I guess Austin Slater's back. Uh, everything seems to be kind of sort of going as, as planned. Yeah, I think if you have a grade eight oblique strain, that's when you're looking across the room saying, why is my torso over there? Um, so yeah, that would that would be bad. That, why, why did this alien pop out of my chest? Um, gosh, I, I thought I was feeling indigestion. Um, grade three is... Grade three is pretty bad. Grade two is what Seiya Suzuki has with the Cubs, where he basically is going to be out uh, for you know maybe the first couple weeks of the season, and they know that going in. Um, it's like a six to eight week thing. Grade one is whoo. Okay, we caught it in time before it really you really you know ripped a gasket here. So um, and even even then, Machaniger said, "Hey, I didn't think a stream would even show up because it's pretty mild. He's had them more significantly where." You know, it, it's a chore to get in and out of your car, and that's not the situation here. Mm. So they're they're being very very cautious, but these things can. You think they're gone, and they're not quite gone. Uh, he's only played, I think, seventy games in a season once in the last four years, uh, and that year he hit thirty nine homers and drove in over a hundred. So uh, they know how important it is to keep him on the field and what kind of impact he can make. But they got to keep him on the field. So. Um, so yeah, grade one is certainly uh, good news uh, relative to what it could be. But again, because of the injury history and, and his trouble staying on the field, anything like this is going to be uh, a little bit of a, a yellow caution flag that goes up. Now, I'm looking at uh, fan graphs and roster resource. Uh, they do a great job with their depth chart. As of right now, they have Jock Peterson in right field because of this injury. Uh, is that a true or false? Do you think Jock Peterson will see the outfield this year if just one of these outfielders gets hurt? If, and I'm talking about uh, specifically Michael Conforto, Mitch Handiger. If one of them goes down, is the plan immediately to pivot back to Peterson on the outfield? Well, I don't know. I mean, they've got Jock playing in center field for Team Israel. So if he starts, you know, flagging down fly balls out there, maybe the Giants will get uh, get an idea. Uh, no. um, yeah, I think the idea is for Jock Peterson to play as little outfield as possible. You know, he'll be walking in the dugout. Uh, Jock, what, what's that big, rub, uh, big leather thing on your hand? Is that a glove? Yeah, no, put that away. You don't need that. <laughs> Just go stand by the bat rack until it's your turn to hit again. I mean, he gave back almost all his war on defense last year, and he created a lot of war on offense. So I think that, um, uh, you know, when you talk about left-handed hitting options in the outfield, you got Mike Stremski in center. Uh, you obviously have uh, Conforto in right, and uh, and then you've got, uh, maybe Blake Sable in left, potentially, uh, a guy who is a left-handed hitter who uh, is catching and, and learning as he's going, but can also play the outfield and is pretty athletic. Um, that may be the way they line up with Lamont Wade Jr. at, at first base and then Jock at DH. And then what they do from the right side is, is kind of interesting, especially if Hanniger is out. Uh, you got Austin Slater, obviously, who's back on the field again. 
Um, and, you know, they, they kind of, as a roster, are a little too left-handed in the outfield and a little too right-handed on the infield. So, you know, maybe at some point Tyro Estrada goes out there to balance things out. Mm-hmm. But uh, that I think that means Brandon Crawford is healthy, which obviously he's not right now. So a few little imbalance issues, I think, on the roster. But, um, you know, even in the areas where they don't have the, the thickest layers of depth, they still have people who are functional players who can step in. And that hasn't always been the case for the Giants. I'm <clears throat> Brian Bocock. <laughs> oh man, I I like I feel like I should get uh, a warning when like uh, like Clippy should pop up on my word processor every time I tell the Brian Bocock story again. Like, hey, sure, I think people have got this. I I think I mentioned the idea that they didn't have a, a backup shortstop for Omer Vizquel once a week, and you just mentioned it in your story because it's so hard to believe. It is just so hard to believe they didn't have a plan behind Omer Vizquel who was like 57 years old at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't even have to say hyperbole. He was 41, 41. You don't need any hyperbole. He's a 41-year-old shortstop. You don't have to say 107, right? 41-year-old shortstop, oh and they had no backup plan behind him. It's like, you look back on that, and I maybe some other people got hurt. I don't know, but you think, that's kind of like, I mean malpractice how do you allow that to happen and, and and you know brian sabian obviously accomplished you know a few decent things as a baseball executive it's not like they had huge blind spots but for whatever reason they had nothing uh, uh in terms of a secondary plan when omar Vizquel, oh surprise surprise a 41 year old shortstop needed knee surgery in spring training that was in 2008 and i do have to say because i so infrequently have the opportunity to tell this story can I tell the Brian Bocock story? Uh, I, well, that's between you and your God. It's um, it's my favorite spring tra- training story I ever wrote. <laughs> it will never, ever be topped. Um, by me, anyway. Um, but so maybe a year or two after that, Brian Bocock was struggling. He had some sort of issue where his fingers were turning blue. He wasn't getting enough oxygen uh, in his capillaries to his hand. And so they tried a whole bunch of different things uh, it was affecting him at the plate. He couldn't grip the bat. It was his hand was numb. Uh, they told him quit chewing tobacco. He did that. They put him on uh, different medications. Finally, they put him on a medication that was developed as a circulatory aid, and it was Viagra. Uh, oh he had to take a low dose of Viagra every day, not just when the mood strikes, <laughs> but every day. And so he would go to the pharmacy. And he'd show them the prescription and just wait for the reaction. And the pharmacist would usually flip out because he was basically taking all the Viagra they had. And then he would say, then they would look at the name on the prescription and see Brian Bocock. And they would assume that I was in some other line of work. (laughs) So... Yeah, oh my. That's, that might be a little too uh, spicy for Bags and Brisby. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, you know, but uh, so but yeah, it, it wasn't too spicy for the San Jose Mercury News when I blogged about it. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like this could devolve into doing like a serial or a slow burn type of podcast where we just go through the Brian Bocock decision. Like the year is 2006 and Brian Bocock out of Stetson University. And like we can make this like a really serious eight part episode, of like the who's, the what's, the where's, the when's. I'm in. Like I think yeah. I think we could push it. I think we could sell ads for that. Yeah, I, I need to listen to like serial about another five or six or a hundred times to make sure I get all the cadence down on uh, on how exactly you 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 
tell the story. But I, I listen to a lot of those podcasts when I'm driving to and from spring training. I, I don't spend a lot of time in the car. I just don't have a very long commute, which I'm, I'm very blessed and happy to, to say that's the case. But driving to and from spring training is when I knock out some podcasts. And I love like the podcasty like like cadence and, and language and you know uh it's it's very interesting to me it's very sort of soothing i don't know if we're soothing do are we soothing we're not soothing uh, maybe a I, little soothing i think we're i think we're soothing i think i've got a little bit of asmr in my in my voice i but now i i want to embarrass myself on a podcast and try and do like a dan carlin impression uh so what you got is Brian Bocock, right? And, and what he's doing is at a Stetson University. Who else went to Stetson University? Well, that's right. It's Corey Kluber, right? Is that is that Dan Carlin-esque? Yeah, and their mascot is the Hatters, of course. <laughs> wow, we are off track. Okay, let's let's wind it back a little bit. Uh, talk me down from Blake Sable. I don't want to be hurt again. I, I think I might have written about Drew Ferguson, and I understand how these things work. I just can't get out of my head that Blake Sable was a, wasn't just a Rule 5 pick, but he was a very high Rule 5 pick that the Giants had to trade up to acquire. So this wasn't just a, ah, we'll throw him into camp and see how this plays out. They had uh, designs. They, they've planned this out for a while, and then the guy comes to camp and a, a one-for-two day lowers his batting average. So talk me down. Am I too excited about Blake Sable? Uh, yeah, you have people who have big spring trainings all the time, and and you know have put up impressive stats, and and I think we've all seen enough of these to understand that you don't necessarily evaluate based on, you know, who's seven for nine, uh, as much as just what they look like on the field and how they compete. And I mean, Sable's got a lot to learn as a catcher. The other day, he's catching Logan Webb, and the first inning was a struggle. Uh, it's a struggle for him to throw to bases and. Uh, uh, to get on the same page with the pitcher. But the second inning was better, and the third inning was even better than that. So I think that there's aptitude there, and there's a lot of athleticism, and uh, it looks like he can hit. And not only that, but um, makes good swing decisions. And, you know, you look at a Drew Ferguson, he's a guy who would get on base a lot, but it was because he was walking. And once you get to upper-level pitchers, I think they realize that they can just exploit him within the strike zone, and it wasn't going to work. With, with Sable... He looks like a guy who can hit a little bit and has a good mastery of the strike zone. And that's pretty predictive. And the fact that he's got these other athletic tools uh, would make him even more valuable. And so, you know, can you have only two catchers on the roster and he's one of them? Uh, that may be a, a little tough of an ask. But if he's a third catcher and he's playing outfield and coming off the bench, um, yeah, I could definitely see him being someone who's a part of this team to start the season. And then... And then you give them a little runway and see see where it goes. You make a really good point about not all walks being created equal. Uh, my go-to uh, from baseball history is Juan Pierre. And people would say, uh, this is back in the earlier part of the sabermetrics movement where it was all so simple. Everyone just needed to get on base and take more walks. And it really wasn't that simple. But we were all arrogant and young back then. And uh, Juan Pierre is like, well, he just needs to walk more. And I think Juan Pierre walked as much as Juan Pierre could walk. I think he he didn't he was never going to walk 80 times because major league pitchers would not let him. 
That would be malpractice. They would not be in the major leagues if they just kept walking Juan Pierre. So he actually had a really good eye and he had a long major league career because he also had good bat to ball skills. And so he was able to uh, turn that eye into something that worked for him. Whereas you can have someone else who has a great eye, but if they don't have that same Juan Pierre bat to ball skills and they just keep getting challenged, they're not going to stick in the major leagues. When I watch Blake Sable, I see someone who has those swing decisions. And again, I'm talking about, I've seen him, uh, I've seen two televised games with him and I've seen maybe four at bats or something like that. I, I'm not a Blake Sableologist. I'm just saying he seems to have uh, a good, he lets the ball get deep. He's got a good swing. And I, I want to not get excited about this, but I also see with my very, very amateur eyes, uh, he could be a guy that fits and it just helps so much that it's clear the Giants are high on him. The Giants traded up to get him. They're pretty darn high on him. And, and I think that says a lot as well. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I think they're going to try to find pretty much any way for him to be on this team. And, you know, he is still a luxury as a rule five pick. I mean, uh, the, the one thing is I get this question a lot. Well, why can't they just work out a trade with the Pirates to keep him? And then he'd have a, a set of minor league options. You could bring him up and down. Uh, he'd be more valuable to them. Absolutely, he would be. But the problem is, and the Reds acquired him from the, the Pirates and then traded him to the Giants. Uh, before he could be offered back to Pittsburgh, he would have to be put on waivers and then anybody else could claim him uh, for 100000 bucks, And then they would get a, a nice shiny new Blake Sable with all the Rule 5 um, sort of protocols still attached to him. So it, clearly if the Giants traded up to get him, they had to know that other teams would have taken him before their turn came around. So, um, so I think that it would be really hard to predict that they could get him to clear waivers and then work out a deal with the Pirates, which you don't know if the Pirates may say, no, we we saw it in spring training what you saw. This guy's good. Uh, We want him back. So I I think the safest way for him to stay in the organization is for him to stay on the active roster. And uh, I think they realize that. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of Rule 5 picks be sort of like, well, it's it's an experiment. It's a luxury if we can keep him great. If not, you know, no sweat we tried. I think I sense something different here. I sense that they really do see somebody who uh, they think could be an integral part of this team. Uh, Galaxy brain here. And this is why I should be in a front office. So I understand why you can't work out a trade with just the Pirates. But how about working out a trade for all 29 teams saying, hey, if you pass him on waivers, we'll give you this prospect for cash. Uh, Just make like a a 30 team deal. It could make history. This is why uh, I should be in a front office. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder what would happen if you actually, (laughs) I guess, what if you trade? What if you traded him to the Pirates and then the Pirates could trade him back to you? Would there be no? I'm pretty sure the Rule Five stuff would still apply. I guarantee you that that Jeremy Shelley, Farhan Zaidi, they, they, Pete Patella—they've all locked themselves in a room. They figured out every possible <laughs> way they could get around this rule. And if there's no way around it, there's no way around it. Uh, but um, but yeah, the Rule Five draft thing is whole. It's weird. It's really it's interesting. It's sort of uh, persisted through a lot of other changes in the game. And I mean, you go way back. I mean, wasn't Roberto Clemente a Rule Five pick? I mean. Uh, it's, he was. There, there are some fa- fairly celebrated examples. Johan Santana is brought up quite a bit, yep. um, but uh, but yeah, it's. I, I think he's a guy that they're going to really, really try to to carry. 
And, you know, with the days off in the schedule early, maybe they can afford to keep an extra position player. Although we know that they're probably going to have to deal with some weather in New York and Chicago. So who knows uh, how games might back up and maybe you don't have as much pitching depth or coverage as you think. Teams always try to cover themselves with more pitching than they think they need. So, uh, but you know, the, the, the thing is the roster obviously is never static. These decisions are never static in spring training until the very, very end. Um, and other people can get hurt or be a little nicked up, or you might need some more coverage here because this guy's a little bit iffy there. Um, so the, all that stuff is always ongoing, but, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the catching position I think is, is interesting to see how that plays out because we know that's one position where you don't want to like trade for someone at the end of camp and introduce somebody. You want your catchers to know your pitchers sure. and that that's the process that they're going through with Sable right now. Let's move on to, I was a little bit surprised that Sam Long went down, uh, was options er, this early in camp, uh, because I, I thought he had a really good shot to be one of the long relievers, no pun intended, pen, pun half intended, uh, on the pitching staff. But I still, I'm looking at the, the depth chart and different permutations you could have. Even with the days off at the beginning of the season, do you think the Giants are going to take uh, three long relievers in the same bullpen to get bulk innings out of uh, Junis, Jelly, and Desclafani? Or are they going to play around with that and use those off days and maybe take one of those guys and have a a higher octane arm mixed in or maybe take that uh, uh, 13th or 14th position player? Uh, What do you think they'll do with that bullpen? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting when you have seven starters essentially, and Junis we know will be a swing man, and, and maybe Di Sclafani will be one, or Alex Wood, or you know, we don't know how they're going to line it up after Webb and Cobb in the first two games. Um, Sham and I, I think they're looking at as a starter right now. Ross Stripling, they're looking at as a starter. Um, so you know, Sean Jelly is a guy who can give you multiple innings. He can start. He's having a really nice spring. Um, I, I might think that they'd be more apt to keep someone who's more of a sprint guy, a, a, a power guy. Like you said, Cole Waits uh, is is ramping up to the point where he might be able to make himself an option uh, for the opening day bullpen. Uh, and you're right. They did send out a few people a little quicker than maybe I, I thought they might, including Kyle Harrison, uh, who's you know wasn't a candidate to make the team on opening day. But I thought they would want to see a little more of him in this camp uh, other than just four innings. Uh, since they, everyone said that it's possible that he'll be up and, and maybe up at some point soon uh, in the big league season. But uh, Keaton Wynn had a nice camp. Tristan Beck had a nice camp. They sent those guys out already. And Sam Long, you're right, a guy who's been uh, one of those up-and-down optionable pieces. And I think he will be again this year. Uh, but, you know, they they want him to to start to refine a little bit more in the strike zone. He's He's been a little more hittable than I think they're comfortable with. And, uh, and I think they're going to have him work on some new wrinkles uh, with his fastball, big changeup, or big curveball, sorry, uh, uh, combination um, to maybe equip him with a little bit more uh, on the fastball, a little more fastball movement profile. So that may be a work in progress. And, and um, you know, but, but I think they're, they're hoping he'll be one of those up and down optionable um, depth guys this year too. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I think for, for where we handicapped the bullpen being, uh, maybe we expected him to stick around a little bit longer in camp than he did. 
of the sprint guys who are on the 40 man roster, who I thought going into, uh, you know, in the middle of February, I thought, well, these guys would have a shot with a good spring. You have Cole Waits, who's been hurt, hasn't appeared yet in the Cactus League. Uh, Randy Rodriguez, who threw, I think, one inning before he was optioned down. And Jose Cruz, who threw a couple innings and looked really wild and raw doing it. So I don't think, uh, you know, Cole Waits has the best chance of the three, of course. But is there anyone in NRI who might uh, jump up, whether it's Melvin Adon or uh, R.J. Dabovich, or is there someone in camp who is making you think, oh, you know, they might make it interesting to be that sprint guy, the last guy in the bullpen? Well, what if I told you that there might be a new non-roster invitee in camp? Uh, I'm listening. Are you breaking news? Maybe, maybe just a little Ooh. bit, uh, since I'm Ooh. I'm told that our story will be posted before this podcast uh, is available to the general listening audience. But the Giants are inviting an old friend back by the name of Sergio Romo uh, to Major League Camp on a non-roster uh, invitation basis, and he's going to be here on Friday, from what I'm told. Uh, he's got a passive physical first, and. Uh, uh, but really, this is kind of a unique situation. I don't know if you remember back in 2008 when the Giants signed J.T. Snow, who hadn't played since 06 with the Red Sox. And they signed him in the last second-to-last home game of the season, and he started at first base and was replaced before the first pitch was thrown, but after the, the game had officially been uh, started. So he f- was in the box score. And uh, his last game was as a giant, and he got a send-off. Well, this this may not be identical, but what they're doing is they're bringing Sergio Romo in, and uh, they're going to prep him and build him up a little bit and have him appear in some exhibition games. And the thought is that he'd be one of the guys to take the mound uh, March 27th when the Giants play their final exhibition uh, at Oracle Park against the A's. And that would be his way of, of, of playing El Mechon and having him skip out of the bullpen and doff his cap to the crowd and actually throw an inning and throw his slider uh, one last time. And uh, now I will say that that's 99% of the plan. 1% of the plan, and this is straight out of the Disney playbook, uh, if <laughs> they catch total lightning in a bottle and he's feeling great, um, there's a possibility that, that he could continue his career with the Giants. They're not 100% closing the door on that. That's not the intention here. That's not the hope. That's not the expectation. Um, but both sides are kind of like, eh, you know, let's explore the space. Let's see how where this goes. So, yeah, Sergio Romo is going to be in camp in uniform uh, as a Giant once again. How about that? That is so cool. And we're all here looking for the next Travis Sisikawa or Connor Gillespie, but it's the mound. It's the mound where these uh, giants, it's an even year, right? It's an even year. Um, so he has to pass a physical. Is that what you said? Yeah, but even if he doesn't pass the physical, it's like, I don't think they're going to send him home. <laughs> then he'd just be like the pitching version of Hunter Pence and he'd be in camp and he'd help to mentor the guys and basically be around in, in sort of a special assistant capacity. I just don't want to be a wet blanket, but uh, 2010 uh, headline, Romo turns an ankle, then turns the page. Uh, 2017, Dodgers play Sergio Romo on 10-day disabled list with sprained ankle. Is there something we don't know about Sergio Romo's ankle? I'll just cut right to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, w- w- it's, it is a physical, and w- we we know that's a little bit thorny right now of a topic. Uh, uh, I even said to someone in the Giants front office, I said, not to be glib, but I understand why you guys are, are a little uh, hinky over physicals right now. And then I stopped myself, and I'm like, no, 
I, I, I did mean to be glib. I did. I meant to be glib right there. That was glib. That, that, that's what that was. You know, honestly, if he just does that, uh, the uh, doff the cap sort of thing, I think that's excellent. I just, he has so much uh, of, of a bond with the Giants fans and it is the greatest entrance music perhaps in closer history. Uh, and it'll give me an excuse because I'm always scrambling for content. Uh, I'm always thinking about myself toward the end of spring training. And I just I want an excuse to go back and, and, and celebrate that 2011 season as one of the greatest relief seasons of all time. Full stop. I don't think, you know, 2011 is remembered for uh, Buster Posey. It's remembered for Ryan Vogelsong coming back. But Sergio Romo in that season was one of the greatest relief seasons you'll ever 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 see and i just i i want another reason to celebrate it and oh the next year he was the closer for a world series winning team so uh he's got some goodwill built up with the fans yeah and he threw the clinching pitch of a clinching world series game to strike out a guy who won the triple crown that year with his second best pitch was was an 88 mile an hour fastball i mean it's the ultimate I mean, peering in the lion's jaws and just sticking half your head in. I mean, that was, it was so emblematic of the fearlessness he had on the mound his whole career. Uh, and, and you know what? It, it is really cool when I went back and started looking at, well, where does he rank in all of these different, uh, uh, I guess, categories? And he's a third all time in games pitched in San Francisco Giants history. Uh, fifth all time wow. when you fold in some guys named Christy Mathewson and Carl Hubble. Nobody has ever towed the, the rubber more often in the history of the Giants waterfront ballpark than Sergio Romo. 268 times as a Giant, uh, plus four times in other uniforms that sometimes may have been blue and white. Uh, he said the fans are, were so good to him, they didn't even boo him when he came back as a Dodger. Uh, <laughs> that was something that he appreciated. And, he, and here's what he did in, in those home games, 268 ERA. 10.3 strikeouts uh, per nine. Uh, uh, he had a, over a six K to walk ratio, uh, 190 opponents average, 194. And his whip was 0. 0.89, 0.89 whip. And we're talking about 272 appearances. I mean, that's multiple seasons worth of appearances where he's allowing, you know, 0. 0.9 batters per inning. That, that's just outstanding. I mean, that's, you think about what that means over time. And, uh, and then it's not just that he was successful, but how he did it, you know, and and the way that the ballpark responded to him and the entrance music and the, the, the way that he would, you know, just kind of show you how much joy he had out there and how, you know, he, he knew he was someone who beat the odds to be there. And yet he was so confident in a sport where six foot four, 220 pound chiseled guys are taken in the first round every year who have every advantage and, and play for every travel ball team and get all the shiny equipment and, and, and get $4 million bonuses and never make the big leagues. And this sport weeds everybody out. And yet a five foot eight kid from Brawley, California, uh, with just basically, I mean, seriously, David and Goliath, he, he was, that's all he had was a slingshot, right? And he took it out there and he, hit a lot of people, big baddies between the middle of the eyes and and uh, and did it for a long time and, and did it very successfully. So it's really cool that he gets this moment to come back and, and kind of exit on his terms and, and really cool for the fans too, quite honestly. This is a huge win for the fans to be able to participate in that moment. So cool, so cool. I, and I always forget that he was the, the one who got the final out of the 2012 World Series because I was still in the hospital at the time uh, after uh, his at-bat with Jay Bruce. Um, I was still recovering <laughs> from the 12th pitch at-bat, and so I missed the whole World Series, but I heard it was a doozy. I heard it was a doozy. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. That one, I mean, one swing of the bat turns the entire NLDS, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I talked to a lot of different people uh, about Sergio in the last few days uh, when I knew that this was happening. And uh, one of them was Dave Rigetti, who was a bullpen coach for Team USA and, and, uh, and was at Scottsdale Stadium the other day. And he said, uh, Romo's the best reliever I ever coached. And I, I, I told Sergio that. And it was five minutes of, of him struggling to get out a word. I mean, it, it really moved him to hear that because um, he has so much respect for Dave Rigetti, who helped him through so many times when he was dealing with you know, crises on the field, crises off the field, uh, really just needed a support system. And he got it. He felt he had it. And it's like, I, I don't know if I would have had the career that I would have had. I, I'm sure I wouldn't have had the career I would have had if I'd come up in a different organization and was surrounded by a different group of people that didn't include you know, Javi Lopez and Bruce Bochy and Ryan Vogelsong and, and all the different people that he named off Jeremy Affelt and, um, you know, and Javi Lopez was, a, was just huge, a huge teammate for him. And, uh, uh, just very, very appreciative of, of all of that. Not just the big moments he got to be a part of, but just the, the friends he made along the way, which is always what counts the most. All right. This has been episode 223 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Uh, we will be back next week uh, where we will not be talking about any other injuries. Uh, we are just going to be talking about uh, Blake Sable improving his average to 700. Uh, so we will see you then. Thanks for listening.